It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Today's show is brought to you by Outdoor Research. Outdoor Research invites you to check out the new Refuge Hybrid Hooded Jacket and the legendary Ascendant Hoodie. Yes, legendary. Through Outdoor Research's clever use of quantum multiverse theory, both the Refuge and the Ascendant are simultaneously the ultimate mid-layer jacket. Yes, your mind just got blown. The Refuge is slim cut and ready for action and movement on cold days, while the Ascendant is ready for pretty much everything in this universe and the one that popped into existence at the end of this sentence. They're lightweight and perfect for stashing in the pack against that inviting t-shirt morning that turns into a grueling mess by afternoon. So don't limit yourself to one universe. Branch into infinity at OutdoorResearch.com or your favorite local shop. Outdoor Research is a proud, if sometimes slightly confused, sponsor of the Runout Podcast. Spring is here and love is in the air. In the case of nesting closures at your local crag, we mean this quite literally. Across the country and the world, land managers tasked with protecting several species of cliff-nesting raptors find themselves barring climbing on roots, walls, and whole areas so that sensitive birds can just have a little peace and quiet to get it on and raise their fledgling young. Despite crowing pretty nonstop about how much we love the outdoors and wild places, climbers can get pretty cranky pretty quickly when told we can't do what we want, when we want, wherever we want. But in our defense, nesting closures can seem pretty scattershot from place to place, agency to agency, making us wonder, what exactly do these birds need to make the love connection? In light of a substantial increase in closures this spring in Indian Creek, Utah, aka the climby chunk of the newly minted Bears Ears National Monument, we here at the Runout decided to look for some answers to the how and why of nesting closures. We are joined on this episode by biologist climber Eric Chabot of Hawkwatch International. Eric is intimately familiar with nesting closures in Indian Creek around the Wasatch Range in the western desert of Utah, and can also shed some light on the science and resource pressures behind the nesting closures at your local area. I'm Chris Kluse, and joining us as usual is Andrew Bishrat, and you are listening to The Runout. And if what you hear on today's show doesn't satisfy your cravings for the secret lives of Randy Birds, Eric can be reached at eshabot at hawkwatch.org. That's E-C-H-A-B-O-T at hawkwatch.org. And he is more than happy to field your appropriate questions. So, Andrew, welcome back to the Western Slope. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, you, you made a couple trips, but... but as we talked about in a, a couple episodes ago, you had a forced sojourn on the front range of Colorado. Yeah, yeah, it's been a, a roller coaster, but we're on the upside of the roller coaster right now. So happy to be home for the time being. And not to get too personal, but your your wife's womb has has been the place of a miracle. It's true. Yeah, she has. Um, it's it's a divine intervention on on the, her placenta. It seems to have miraculously moved into the proper position. So our, our pregnancy is, is full speed ahead right now. And you, 
you can expect pilgrims to be showing up anytime now at your house. <laughs> but, um, and the other thing I wanted to mention, because we, we definitely talk a bit about the Western Slope and the Front Range, even though this thing goes way out beyond Colorado. So just for you folks listening elsewhere, the Front Range, which constitutes like Fort Collins to uh, Colorado Springs, Denver, Boulder, that whole zone is uh, the part of Colorado where most people live. And it's also a hellish landscape of shopping malls and traffic. And and on the other hand, we live on the Western Slope, which is is basically paradise found in Colorado. Um, yeah. And it's the other other side of the mountains where when you flush the toilet, it goes to the Pacific. So a little <laughs> geography lesson for you guys. The only redeeming quality to the Front Range is they have like 35 really nice climbing gyms. Yeah, yeah. And I, I got to become a gym climber in the last couple months, which is a unique experience for me. I, I actually bought my first month-long gym membership of my life, which is uh, saying something after, you know, almost 20 years of climbing. Right on. I'm sure you're super strong, too. That was so strong. So uh, speaking of the Western Slope, um, we've got a guest here from Utah, and I'd like to introduce our guest for today, who's Eric Chabot, who works for Hawkwatch International. And uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I got in touch with Eric a little while ago through a mutual friend uh, when I saw a bunch of new bird closures down in Indian Creek. And I wanted to talk to Eric and get the lowdown on what it means uh, in terms of bird closures all over the country in climbing areas, how climbers affect birds, and uh, what the whole scoop is. So welcome to the show. And m- maybe we could just start, Eric, by telling us a little bit about uh, where you work up there and what you do with Hawkwatch. Sure. So I am a, a researcher with Hawkwatch International. I'm also a recreational climber. Uh, I've been with Hawkwatch since 2011, and I've been climbing since... 2008 or 2007, I guess now. Um, so I'm definitely kind of one of the, uh, the newer generation of climbers that, that started off climbing in the gym. I do a lot of research with um, hawks, eagles, other birds of prey. My, uh, my main species that I focus on is the golden eagle, which we have a lot of here in Utah. I'm based out of Salt Lake City. Recently, uh, we were approached by uh, the BLM to do a little bit of work for them down in, in, in Indian Creek to support the, the raptor advisories that are, that are going on down there. Um, I've also been working a bit with the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance about some issues that are related to access and raptors a little bit closer to home for me around the West Desert and, uh, and Salt Lake City crags. So when you're working with the government, like with the BLM down in Indian Creek, you're just working as a contractor and sort of giving advice on how they're running um, their show down there. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. We're, we're kind of functioning in a, a consultant role for the BLM. Um, Hawkwatch International, we do our own research, but we also do consulting for land management agencies um, and other entities. So we're definitely not the, the raptor police, so to speak. We're a, we're a non-advocacy organization. Um, so we believe that that decision making by land managers and 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 by the public should be based on science, and so we do our best to collect information about birds of prey and, and to share that. Um, we also have an educational branch where we do outreach around around raptors. So, yeah, we're basically a, a non advocacy research based science organization. That, that's awesome to hear because, um, from my impression, is maybe from a sort of cynical mentality, it always seems like. Typically, you know, bird closures in climbing areas have sort of been based on just, oh, I see birds nesting here. 
all climbing needs to be shut down, you know, within a three mile radius. I don't know to what degree there's been research conducted around uh, how climbing impacts birds, but it's it's always seemed to be um, unsupported. So maybe you could fill us in on how new this research is, maybe the history of it and and what how your work uh, plays into that. So the the research around the the area that that birds need when they're when they're nesting, um, there's actually very little of it specific to climbing. There's a few papers um, that have come out recently, particularly um, one by Rob Spall up at Boise uh, State University about uh, recreational activities and nest disturbance. In general, a lot of the the closures are they tend to err on the side of of being conservative. Um, so land managers that don't necessarily have the ability or the resources to do a more comprehensive monitoring program will often apply um, a conservative buffer zone around uh, a nest site that they know about in order to to be certain that they're they're protecting the the nest site, which they're obligated to do under a law called the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, so it a lot of times when you see those larger, more blanket closures, it really comes down to monitoring resources and a conservative approach that's that's being taken. So um, as long as we're talking about the science, maybe you could give us, you know, sort of a nutshell of the ecology around what we do know about what these birds need, the species that are usually interacting with climbers or climbers are interacting with them um, and that sort of thing. Just kind of give us a, a place to start talking about this. Sure. So there's a, a few different species that we're concerned about, uh, cliff nesting raptors in, in North America. Um, the most famous of those is the peregrine falcon. But in the West, we also have prairie falcons, which are a little bit smaller, but similar, uh, similar species. We also have golden eagles, which are, they're additionally protected under a different law called the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. So those are ones that, that's a species that land managers tend to be extra concerned about. And then we have uh, red-tailed hawks and great horned owls, which are uh, not as large of a conservation concern, but they still are nesting on cliffs and have the potential to be disturbed by uh, by anyone approaching their nest site. Um, and, and those birds, all these different species that I just mentioned, they'll only have one chance to reproduce each year, and, and they'll, they'll make their nesting attempts during the spring. Another reason for some of the larger closures that you see in some areas is that... Um, Land managers will typically close an area that protects the entire territory for that nesting bird. And, and golden eagles in particular, which is a species that I'm the most familiar with, so I'll, I'll probably default to talking about them. They can have up to seven or eight, even ten nest sites, so like actual nest structures within that territory. And they'll rotate in between different nests uh, between different years. Um, and we're not exactly sure why they do that, but in any case... In an ideal situation, a uh, large closure might be enacted over the bird's entire territory. And then once the pair of eagles settles on the nesting site, um, if monitoring is able to, um, to determine where they're at, which site they've selected for the year, then that closure can be narrowed down just to the area that, that kind of encompasses the, that one site. So the different species that I mentioned... Um, they're going to have different sensitivity levels to uh, human activity and and different behaviors that they'll that they'll do that you can watch out for that may indicate that you might be in an area where where you're causing some disturbance. Now, if you do disturb a nest when you're out climbing, maybe you're in an area that's a little more off the beaten path. 
there's no closure, but, but you notice a bird that's, that's calling repeatedly and it's flying back and forth and it's, it seems agitated. Uh, and it's during the springtime. That's a, that's a pretty good indication that you may be near a nest site. And, and depending on how you feel about that, you may want to choose to, to avoid that crag or, or let some, let your local land manager know about that. So peregrine falcons and prairie falcons and red-tailed hawks uh, will have like that, that kind of active response when they're being disturbed. They'll, they'll let you know if you're coming into their territory. Golden eagles, on the other hand, they're a lot more passive and, and they'll just kind of fly away and leave the nest site alone. So I think it kind of makes sense to have a larger area around, around those nests since they, they don't really look out for themselves the way that those other species do. Um, that being said, if you do go into an area and, and you disturb a nest once, it's unlikely to cause that nest to fail. But if, if people are, are going into an area time after time and that bird is, is spending its energy and its resources uh, flying around defending the territory or it's not able to, um, to spend time at the nest site and protect its eggs, protect its chicks, then that can lead to the nest, the nest failing and that bird is kind of out of luck for its reproductive attempt for that year. So it's sort of about the frequency and the duration of the disturbance. Um, if you flush a bird off a nest one time or you notice that, it's not going to fail the nest unless it's just the right, you know, just the wrong time. But that's what these closures do is kind of help protect them from these repetitive impacts. Because, I mean, imagine if you're a bird and you're trying to nest on, let's say, Scarface Buttress at Indian Creek. <laughs> <laughs> just the just the photographers would probably send you out of there <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and 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 people are just people are there constantly so it's it's not really an area that they're that they're going to want to be so it's my understanding that a bluetooth speaker playing reggae is particularly bad for nesting yeah <laughs> yeah i we advocate a total ban on on those actually no just kidding um yeah. <laughs> When you say disturbance, I mean, what, what are we talking about? Uh, are, are we talking about, like, obviously climbing up to a, a ledge where the nest is and crawling through it is a disturbance, but what about just being, you know, within eyesight or earshot of, of that bird? Yeah, unfortunately, golden eagles are a particularly sensitive species. So when I'm, when I'm doing my, my monitoring visits for golden eagle nests, I actually try to maintain at least... 600 meters between myself and the nest and I'm using you know a powerful spotting scope to actually look at it so approaching within you know a quarter mile of the nest can actually be enough to to cause them to uh to flush away from the nest now that being said different pairs of eagles will respond really differently depending on how habituated they are to human activity so a nest that's out in a really remote area um, will be a lot, a pair that nests there will be a lot typically more sensitive to disturbance. You know, the example that I used, even just someone approaching within a quarter mile of the nest on foot might be enough to disturb them. Whereas an eagle that's, that's in a more populated area may be more habituated and may be able to tolerate a little bit more. So in kind of a best case scenario, um, those birds, the individual pairs tolerance of, of human activity can be factored into, um, to management through uh, through the closure. So, for example, we are working with the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance and the Forest Service around um, a golden eagle nest that's that's in Maple Canyon. And Maple Canyon, as you 
both know, I'm sure it's, it's a really busy area and this nest without giving away exactly where it is, it's in a, it's in a pretty busy part of the Canyon where a lot of cars and a lot of, you know, pedestrian traffic happens, but we've been able to, to demonstrate through our monitoring that, that those eagles are reproducing successfully with, um, with the level of disturbance that's occurring. So we've been able to, to actually avoid having a strict closure in that case. I mean, there are a couple of walls that, that the SLCA has asked people to avoid, but it, it doesn't seem to be bothering the birds in this case. So, so we're able to, to be a little bit more dynamic with management in that situation. Again, I'm not a land manager. Um, I just kind of advise and consult for them. Um, so I'm not the one that's making those decisions at the end of the day. Does that kind of answer your question, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. That was a great answer. I wanted to ask you a little bit, and it, it kind of goes back to what Andrew was getting at in the beginning of the show there of being sometimes forced to be a little bit skeptical of what's really going on, mainly because we, you know, it's sort of done in the shadows and then just released in terms of like what's closed and what's not. Plus, some places seem to close a couple routes that are near the nest while places like Indian Creek um, do these big blanket kind of uh kind of closures in your opinion and and your experience too what what's the reason for kind of the multiple ways in which different land managers deal with these closures and also the differences between the use of a closure versus an advisory so there can be a lot of reasons for um, the differences in the types of management and the strategies that land managers will use I think Before I really delve into the answer to your question, I want to say that um, a lot of the ways that a land manager will will act depend on the climbing management plan that they have in place. So some areas have a climbing management plan, and this is like a a legal document that essentially controls how the land manager is going to act. And when they put one of those into place, there's a public comment period. and, And when those are developed or revised, that's where groups like the Access Fund or your local climbing organization. So that'd be something like the Friends of Indian Creek, uh, for example, or the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance. Um, that's where those those advocacy organizations can be really, really good allies um, for the climbing community in terms of, of advocating for their interests. So it just, it kind of depends on on what's in the climbing management plan for that land manager. And, and sometimes, and that's kind of done on a, a case-by-case basis. It also depends on the level of resources that the land manager has available to them. I mean, they have a lot of, of different irons in the fire. I mean, they're, they're regulating all different types of recreation activity, ranching, invasive species, you know, for plants or wild horses or, or what have you. So climbing is, is kind of a, a little bit of a, a back burner issue for, for some land managers, um, especially in areas that are a little more peripheral. Um, Indian Creek, it is, it's a world-class area. Um, it's now a national monument. So I believe that the, the National Monument designation may have had something to do with the, the increased um, level of regulation. Typically, we see higher levels of regulation within uh, national parks and national monuments than we do within just regular Forest Service or BLM crags. Or, and then you know, private land crags typically have the lowest level of regulation around uh, bird closures. Are there any examples of just success stories in climbing areas where birds, have, climbers have uh, followed restrictions and birds have thrived because of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I said, in, in Maple Canyon, that's the one that I have you know personal experience with. That's one thing that land managers can do. And, and when they're doing that monitoring, 
um, just communicating that these, that these closures are allowing birds to successfully reproduce. Um, Gavin Emmons is a, a biologist with the Park Service at Pinnacles National Monument in California, and they have a, a long history of, of um, implementing climbing advisories around Golden Eagle and Prairie Falcon and Peregrine Nest uh, um, in, that, in that park. And, and he comes out with a report every year that, that documents the breeding success in these areas that are, that are also popular climbing areas. Um, but I think that's one thing that land managers can do um, in order to to show the climbing community that that the closures are working or, or the um, the birds are successful in, in reproducing. I think that's really valuable when they can do that. So you mentioned that the the fact that the Indian Creek has become a monument. I don't know where that all is legally, but but um, that may have led to a little bit more strict closures this year or strict advisories. Um, and you also mentioned to me before the show that you were just down there doing some work, monitoring some nests. So I'm just kind of wondering what your um, impression is of, you know, how these climbers like myself, when they see these closures, how we react uh, positively, negatively, and also maybe give us some details about what's going on down there at Indian Creek, um, as far as you know. Sure. So I'll answer the second part of your question first about about what I saw when I was recently down there doing the monitoring visits. And depending on when you guys release this show, um, this may predate or it may come out after the BLM's um, new public uh, press release that will that will be revising those those advisory areas. Um, I did. I did see birds in the vicinity of the reservoir wall. Um, so I would expect that nothing is really going to change there. Um, I did not see any birds around um, the fin or the public service wall, broken tooth, close to disappointment, tenderloins and second meat. So I'd expect, um, I'd expect all those areas to be um, out of the advisory. Um, I did locate other another peregrine falcon territory in the vicinity of first meet. So we may, they may um, implement a new advisory there, but I think overall um, it's going to be a, a, a pretty positive thing for access. Uh, and so basically in this situation, what I did was I was, I was checking these nest sites that they know about. And, and as I was verifying that those nest site sites were not in use this year, basically just demonstrating that there's, there's very little impact to raptors for climbers using those areas right now. But again, um, I just want to emphasize, I, <laughs> I don't speak for the BLM, so the, the, the words of their, of their press release are kind of the standard that you want to go by. Um, and depending on when this comes out, maybe, maybe Chris and, and Andrew, you guys can put a link to that press release in the show notes here. And so it was always an advisory. So in terms of people, you know, being arrested or ticketed or anything like that, that really wasn't the case. This is something that they're asking people just to uh, to go by out of the goodness of their hearts. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's not a strict legal closure in which you'll be ticketed if you visit an area that that is under one of these advisories. But but it is relying on on climbers to do the right thing and. Uh, and I think overall, to answer the second part of your question that you asked me before, for the most part, you know, there's a there's a bit of grumbling here and there, but for the most part, um, most of the climbers that I interact with seem generally interested in in conserving nesting habitat and, and interested in in avoiding um, those crags. I mean, especially in the West, we have such a a wide variety of, of climbing areas that we're able to visit 
throughout the springtime that um, avoiding certain walls during the spring isn't as isn't as inconvenient to us as it may be to climbers in the east, for example. I would argue that a, a much bigger portion of the climbable rock in North Carolina or in the Northeast actually close each spring versus versus Indian Creek. I mean, and the other the other part of it being designated as a national monument is anyone that's listening to this show that that has been to Indian Creek for um, you know a number of years will notice and will be able to attest to the level of traffic that it's that it's receiving now. And and I think um, along with that additional traffic is going to come an additional level of regulation if we want these places to remain in the condition that they're in for our children and our grandchildren, we're going to have to be respectful and, and be careful about our impacts. And that comes, you know, that's stuff like erosion and, and trail maintenance. That's stuff like invasive species control, when and where we use the bathroom. But I would argue that we should, we should think about wildlife as well when we're, um, when we're thinking about the future and, and how we want to treat these places that we recreate in. Well, let, let me say this. First of all, I'm a grumbler. Um, I, I grumbled a lot when I saw those closures, uh, mostly because I suspected it was probably at that time sort of a resource issue of them not really having the manpower and the time to to you know actually get a, a, a straight assessment. But at the end of the day, I'll grumble, but I'm not going to go climb there um, because the other issue is obviously access and that we want to maintain a relationship that shows us to be uh, good stewards and to use the land properly so that these land managers don't have uh, sort of fuel to throw on the closure fire uh, when it comes down, comes down to dealing with climbers. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a helpful attitude. Um, I also want to say that some reactions I've gotten from some people are more of the grumbler kind of, Oh, the birds can nest somewhere else. We should just be able to climb. And, and I don't want to completely dismiss that viewpoint because ultimately like everything we do in our modern day lives has an impact on the environment and has an impact on wildlife. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to advocate, you know, becoming a total Luddite and, and just riding my bike to the cliff on dirt roads. You know what I'm saying? So we have to have a balance in our approach to these things and, and, I think the important thing is that we decide as a community what areas we want to we want to protect and conserve and and not just make that choice with our eyes closed so to speak and sort of unintentionally making that choice in one direction. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it makes total sense, which is again, I think why most people they they'll grumble but then when the rubber hits the road, they don't go climbing there during the advisories. Um, I would be surprised. I mean, I'm not out there all the time. I'd be surprised if there are many people using those cliffs. Uh, maybe occasionally a couple hard-headed uh, people head over there as some sort of government protest. But um, I'd imagine they're empty uh, for most of the spring when it comes right down to it. Generally, um, compliance is, is pretty good. Um, and that's why land managers are able to go with voluntary closures or advisories sometimes. And, and that's always a win. That's a win for them too, because when climbers are able to police themselves and, and have achieve a, a lesser impact with a lesser level of regulation, um, there's less red tape. There's less challenge for them politically to, um, to actually do their, the management that they want, which is to have birds successfully nesting. 
um, overall, yeah, I, th- I think in, in the Indian Creek issue, I did see some some people that were climbing in uh, in some areas that were under advisories this spring when I was down there doing my monitoring. But overall, my reaction was was not. I wasn't super shocked because the communication from the BLM this year about those areas has not been ideal in terms of like they didn't they didn't name the specific walls that were closed in their, in their press release and in their uh, posters that they put up at the trailheads. Um, so I think that's a, another area where, you know, the access fund or your local access fund affiliate, like friends of Indian Creek can step in and kind of help mediate between, between the climbing community and the land manager and allow um, the land manager to get their message out there in a way that's relevant to climbers and, and specific to the way that we interact with the landscape. Yeah, I mean, and there's a, there's an issue for sure of people coming from all over the world to climb there, and and not every one of them has uh, some sort of conduit to this information if it's not obvious. I mean, literally, there's tons and tons of climbers there that barely speak English uh, from other countries, so it'd be hard for them to know that this certain wall was closed. They'd just be surprised nobody else was there and how lucky they got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Again, again, one one disturbance event is unlikely to cause the nest to fail for that year. So hopefully, if the majority of climbers are are following the advisories, we can still have successful outcome for that nest. Do you have any like just amazing or funny or great bird facts that our re- our listeners would like to know? Oh man, um, they fly. Yeah, <laughs> they fly. That's pretty amazing. Uh, golden eagle nests are actually really disgusting inside. Um, they're full of, of dead rabbits and flesh and other prey. I don't know. I think that's cool. <laughs> maybe go, the Golden maybe Eagles the could clean their nests up and it might be more conducive to setting the mood for their, their mating season. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, they will add, uh, they will, during the early season, they'll spend time like sprucing it up and adding fresh grass or pine needles or whatever onto the nest um, to make <laughs> it attractive for their mates. And then, as usual, as soon as as soon as it's all set up, they just let it all go to hell. It's yeah, like, well, I got I got my mate. I'm good. I'm just gonna sit here and watch TV now and not clean up anything. Yeah, and <laughs> let him bring me jackrabbits. <laughs> right now, well, what, one last question for you too is, in in a nutshell, what's your elevator pitch to climbers as to why this needs to happen and it's good for us, good for the birds, and uh, and good for the land managers. So overall, I think we just need to. We need to look at our community and, and communities growing. Climbers are are interacting with climbing and the landscape in a different way than maybe they were 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and I think the presence of these birds at our cliffs can be a really beautiful thing that affects us as users of the cliff and as climbers. And it's cool to share our cliffs with, you know, this other species. Um, that being said, it's, it's really it's an important part of their life cycle and their, their reproduction to have certain areas where, where they can uh, reproduce without being disturbed. And, and in my opinion, we should, we should put some value on that too. And, and, uh, and allow wildlife the space that they need and choose to climb in a way that's, that's not going to disturb them. Uh, That's just kind of seems like better, a little better style to me. We need to just make these decisions about when and where we're going to climb as a community and, and, and with intention, um, going forward because our community is changing, it's growing and we can't necessarily expect to be this wild unregulated group that, that maybe we were years and years ago. 
um, now that we're swarming over cliffs and, and crags everywhere. Well, cool, Eric. Thanks for coming on the show and, and laying some knowledge on us, on us grumblers out there and uh, what it really means to, uh, to take care of these birds and put our ego in check and, and go climb somewhere else. Yeah, I think, uh, thanks a lot for having me. And I'm, I'm happy to continue the conversation with anyone that's a listener of the show that wants to reach out to me. Um, yeah, feel free. Um, we can maybe include some contact info for me and I'd be, I'd be psyched to, uh, to continue the conversation with anyone that's interested. Um, I also want to give a quick shout out to Black Diamond. They are big supporter, big contributor to Hawkwatch. They donate a lot of gear for our, uh, seasonal technicians that work for us in the fall. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you have a comment, topic suggestion, or just a good bit of climbing trivia, join us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash runoutpodcast or drop us a line at our webpage runoutpodcast.com. <laughs>